The following article from our Knowing and Doing Quarterly Journal is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our prayer is that this talk will help to deepen your faith and draw you closer to God. How to Read the Bible, Part 2 The Science and Art of Interpretation by Dr. Bill Kynes So, you want to read the Bible, but you're not sure how to do it well. What does it really mean? How is the Bible rightly understood? This is a critical question, for it's often asserted that you can get the Bible to say just about anything you want it to say. And hasn't that been true? After all, didn't people once use the Bible to defend slavery, polygamy, the divine right of kings, or the drowning of witches? Shakespeare says it well. In religion, what damned error but some sober brow will bless it and approve it with a text, hiding the grossness with fair ornament. Understanding the Bible necessarily involves interpretation, or what scholars call hermeneutics. We engage in interpretation all the time. Every time we read a billboard, read a letter, examine a legal contract, or pick up a book, we must interpret what's written. We must decode the signs of communication and seek to answer the question, what does this mean? This process is both a science and an art. We think of it as a science in that we seek certain logical rules and procedures that can be applied across the board that result in meaning. We want accuracy and precision. But we have to realize that interpretation is also an art. It's an acquired skill that requires both judgment and imagination. When we talk of decoding signs, we usually think of words as signs that carry meaning, but decoding these words is a process that involves far more than picking up a dictionary and finding a definition. Consider, for example, an international student learning English. If he's at my house and picks up a piece of my mail, and the first words he reads are, Dear Bill, what is he to think? The dictionary may tell him that dear is a term of intimate affection, so he may interpret this phrase in that way. Somebody really likes Bill, he thinks. And if that letter is from my wife, he would be right. But what if that letter was generated by a computer and was sent by a company trying to get me to refinance my mortgage? In that case, he'd be entirely wrong. But how would he know that? How would you explain it to him? Or think about the words that a father may say to his daughter, You will be home by midnight, won't you? Is that a question, an assumption, a command, or even a threat? Only attention to the total context and to the more subtle cues of communication can enable you to decide. This process of decoding involves an assessment of all sorts of factors that require careful attention and sometimes almost mystical insight. What is this person doing by using these words in this way, speaking to this audience? The issue of presuppositions. Here's one reason interpretation can be difficult. When reading a text, people often find there what they expect to see. Our presuppositions can determine the meaning we perceive. The preconceptions we come with can shape what we come away with when interpreting a text. We are all situated in particular social contexts that can greatly influence our perceptions. 
A very early example of this in understanding the Bible can be seen in a group called the Gnostics. Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word meaning knowledge, which became popular from the 2nd century AD, was a mixture of pantheistic ideas from the East, the dualism of Plato, and the mystery religions of the Roman world. They approached the Bible with their own philosophical and religious views. As a result, they interpreted the Bible to say that God the Father of Jesus, found in the New Testament, was different from the God of the Old Testament, who was inferior and created this present evil world. Individual human spirits, once of one substance with the divine, were now imprisoned in earthly bodies, causing them to fall asleep spiritually, blind in this realm of darkness. Jesus had come to wake people up to their true origin and destiny by revealing to them the truth of who they are, beings with a spark of the divine, just like himself. When they read the Bible with their own presuppositions, the Gnostics found passages that supported their understanding. Much closer to home are the modern naturalistic interpreters, whose non-supernatural presuppositions lead them to read the Bible as a book of myths and legends, fanciful stories with no basis in history. Their guiding principle of interpretation was stated well by the noted New Testament scholar of the previous century, Rudolf Bultmann. Now that the forces and the laws of nature have been discovered, we can no longer believe in spirits, whether good or evil. It's impossible to use the electric light and the radio and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and, at the same time, to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. They can't believe in miracles, so it's no surprise that in reading the Bible, they don't find them there. Who is to be master? So, do our presuppositions determine meaning in reading the Bible? I'm reminded of the interchange between Alice and Humpty Dumpty in Wonderland. They were discussing what Humpty Dumpty meant by the word glory. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Who is to be our master in interpreting the Bible? The answer of the first Christians was clear. It was Jesus. They had come to faith in him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, their Savior and their Lord. His authorized representatives, the apostles, had proclaimed the good news of his saving work, and this gospel which they summarized in what was called the rule of faith became the key to the right understanding of the Bible. The Proper Key In the second century, Bishop Irenaeus talked about the role of this rule of faith in biblical interpretation. In those days, mosaics were shipped unassembled, but they included with them a plan or a key that showed the recipient how the tiles were to be put together. The church's rule of faith is like that key, Irenaeus says. Whereas the heretics arranged the scriptures wrongly to form the picture of a dog, 
the Church's rule of faith explains how scriptures are to be arranged to render the portrait of the King. To read the Bible rightly, one must submit to the Master, who alone holds the key to meaning. Jesus Christ and His Gospel must guide our understanding of the Bible, even as our reading of the Bible will refine our understanding of Jesus and His work. Biblical interpretation cannot be separated from theology. There is a two-way relationship between these two. We come to our reading of Scripture with certain suppositions, certain questions, certain expectations, which are either confirmed or challenged by our reading of Scripture, forming a new understanding that is then brought to the process of reading more Scripture. This is what is known as the hermeneutical spiral, this constant back-and-forth relationship between the reader and the text. But its starting point must be Jesus, our Master. So it is that the Church, composed of those who acknowledge Jesus as Master, provides the proper interpretive community within which we rightly understand the Bible. The Bible and its gospel message create the Church, and then the Church proclaims the Bible's message to the world. In what follows, I will begin to spell out some of the interpretive principles that flow from this understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the key to rightly understanding the Bible. We are interpretive realists. Let me begin at the beginning. Because we affirm with Jesus that God exists as the creator of all things and that he speaks in the Bible, we are necessarily interpretive realists. That is, we believe that there is a real meaning in the Bible outside of us, independent of our interpretation and waiting to be discovered. Interpretive realism is grounded theologically in the creator-creature distinction, which affirms the fundamental independence of God from his world, as well as from all human thought and experience. God exists outside of us as the ultimate author of Scripture, and he speaks to us. We receive God's revelation. We do not create it. This may sound obvious, but it is denied by many today. Postmodern interpreters assert that meaning comes not from the author, but from the reader. A text means what it means to me. The postmodern, quote, death of the author, unquote, requires that we create our own meaning. Such hermeneutical will to power is nothing but idolatry, creating our own God. In contrast, we affirm that there is a God who stands outside of us and over us, who has spoken to us, and we had better listen. The authority of the scriptures follows from God's authorship. Our understanding of the gospel gives us hope that God can speak to us, for we believe that God is personal and that he has created us in his image. This provides a theological rationale for our faith in the divine-to-human communication. Good news must be understandable. More than that, we believe that the gospel is God's good news, and to be good news, it must be intelligible. Thus, the very notion of gospel requires divine communication. 
The intelligibility of the gospel undergirds the Reformers' insistence on the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. God has a gospel to communicate with his people, and the Bible's basic saving message can be understood by ordinary readers. So our doctrine of God, God as creator, God as the personal triune God who has a gospel to communicate, and ourselves as created in God's image, all this gives us theological grounds for believing that when we come to the Bible, we can and must hear his voice to us there. Our understanding is limited. Our theology, however, also suggests that not everything in the Bible may be immediately obvious or clear to us. We are critical realists in our interpretation, for although we believe that God can communicate with us, our understanding of who we are as human beings also forces us to recognize the limitations in our understanding. For one thing, as finite creatures, we are culturally located, occupying only one particular place in space and time. Only God is infinite. We are limited in our knowledge, for we cannot know all aspects of language, culture, and history that make for complete communication. Only God is all-knowing. In addition, and more significantly, though we were created in God's image, our theology asserts that we are now sinful. That divine image is now corrupt and in need of repair. In our sinful state, we are spiritually resistant to God's truth, and we are susceptible to demonic deception. There is something about us that now hinders our understanding of God's word to us. We're not so naive as to think that we come to the Bible as neutral observers, with a blank slate, with no pre-understanding, and that we can view the Bible exactly as God views it. Now we see as in a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13.12 We acknowledge something of the postmodern critique. As a result, we are critical realists. We confess we cannot know God's truth exhaustively but we affirm that we can know it adequately and truly. Our understanding is sufficient. What is the ground of such hermeneutical confidence? It can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit. As God is the author seeking to communicate with us, and his text is the word, supremely the word of his Son Jesus Christ, so the Spirit is the one who comes alongside us as readers, enabling us to understand what he has intended. I appreciate what theologian and C.S. Lewis Institute senior fellow Kevin Van Hooser says about this. The Spirit sanctifies the reader, removing pride and prejudice and creating the humility of heart and mind ready to receive something not of its own making. In short, the Spirit transforms us from being non-realists who prefer our own lies to realists who desire to hear the Word of God. Reading in the Spirit, therefore, means letting the letter accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Isaiah 55, verse 11. The Spirit is the Word's empowering presence. So our understanding of God and humanity leads us to be hermeneutical realists. 
God is the author who speaks to us, and we can understand him. We believe in the basic clarity of Scripture in its central message, but our theology also makes us critical realists in our interpretation. Because of our finitude and our sin, God's communication with us is not always clear and plain, and we need the work of the Holy Spirit to be good readers of God's Word. In the Bible, God speaks through human authors. Our understanding of the Bible's divine inspiration affirms that God makes use of the words of human authors to produce His Word. This means that, as a human book, the Bible must be interpreted through grammatical historical means to seek the intention of the human authors as expressed through what they have written. The term grammatical historical is really just a fancy term for the commonsensical way that we think about interpreting any document. What did this person mean by writing these words? Interpretation involves decoding the signs that an author uses to communicate a message. How do we do that? We begin with words, but words can mean all sorts of things. Take, for example, the word attack. Is it a noun or a verb? It could refer to a military exercise or a medical condition or a position on a soccer team. We don't know. Words only have a definitive meaning in the context of a sentence, such as, the wolf went on the attack and ate the little squirrel. The sentence provides a context and has a grammatical structure that helps us sort out what is being said. But sentences have meaning only within a particular setting within the context of a paragraph and of a chapter and of a book. And this raises the question of genre or the kind of book it is. Take that sentence, the wolf went on the attack and ate the little squirrel. How do we understand it? If I read it in our local newspaper, I would probably hesitate to go walking in the woods. But consider the difference in my reaction if that sentence were a part of a story that began once upon a time. That expression is a literary clue that tells me that this is a fairy tale. And knowing that genre, I now know how to understand that sentence correctly. There are all sorts of genres, historical reports, love poems, parables, proverbs, and so on, and we interpret them differently. By using certain generic forms, authors evoke reading strategies in their audience. They send signals to their readers as to how to take their statements. Judgments about genre is part of the art of interpretation. After all, Jesus doesn't announce, I'm telling a parable here, when he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Luke 10, verse 30. The Bible certainly includes historical writing. Luke's introduction to his gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, points to his intention to provide an accurate account of what he reports. He wants us to know that these things really happened. But writing history in the ancient world didn't require a stenographer's record of everything that was said, nor would it preclude topical collections of teachings or events rather than strictly chronological. All this is part of appreciating the cultural assumptions and conventions that authors used in their work. Other kinds of literature 
require other reading strategies. Proverbs tend to present generalizations. Prophetic books may use the common language of the day to depict events beyond our imagination. A book like the Revelation of John uses strange beasts to depict forces in the world, much as political cartoons do in our day. Understanding the ways these various literary forms work is part of the art of interpretation. This grammatical historical principle of interpretation is critical, for it is here that we have the central objective control over the interpretive process. The meaning of the Bible for today must begin with and be controlled by what the Bible meant by those who wrote it. This is where the objectivity of biblical interpretation must be found. Do we interpret the Bible literally? Grammatical historical interpretation in seeking the original intent of the human author must take into account the entire range of the historical, cultural, religious, linguistic, and literary factors that help us arrive at that intention. This means that the term literal becomes an ambiguous term, rightly understood, and this is the way it has been understood, especially since the Reformation, literal interpretation, or sensus literalis, as it is called, is the same as grammatical historical interpretation. That is, it involves a determination of the meaning of the text as the author intended it, taking into account the original historical and cultural context and literary form in which that message was given. The Reformers insisted upon this literal meaning as opposed to an allegorical meaning, which had often been used in the Church, because an allegorical interpretation imported ideas into the text from outside the Bible, distorting its meaning and denying the principle of Scripture alone as our authority. But in using the term literal, we must be careful not to insist upon using terms like plain meaning or obvious meaning. For the obvious question is, plain or obvious to whom? Is it the original reader or someone reading today in his or her 21st century American context? Divine Authorship and Biblical Unity There is, however, another danger in the misuse of so-called literal interpretation. Individual statements in Scripture, taken literally, must be understood in their broader context as part of the entire biblical canon. Didn't Satan tempt Jesus in the desert with a literal interpretation of Scripture, urging him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple with the divine promise of protection? found in Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But Jesus didn't take the bait. He interpreted what is literally said in Psalm 91 by using the broader message of the Bible. In response, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Another notable example of the misuse of biblical literalism appeared in the 4th century. A heretical priest, Arius, insisted upon a literal interpretation of the Bible. Though Arius believed that Christ was highly exalted, he denied that he was eternal. He was still a creature who had a beginning, Arius insisted. For hadn't Paul affirmed in Colossians 1.15 that Christ was the firstborn over all creation? 
The Analogy of Scripture The Bible is its own best interpreter. The Church's response to Arius leads to another principle that follows from our understanding of biblical inspiration. Not only is the Bible a human book requiring grammatical historical interpretation, but it is also a divine book requiring that we recognize its unity. As a book fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Bible reflects one divine mind. Therefore, we must assume that it is consistent with itself. As a consequence, Scripture is its own best interpreter. This principle is known as the analogy of Scripture. How does this principle work? Generally, that which is clear and emphatic in Scripture is to be used to interpret what is obscure and sporadic. That is, passages that treat a topic in a more systematic and coherent fashion help us to understand a passage in which a topic may be referred to in passing. So, for example, the eternal nature of God the Son, the Word as John calls Him, is clearly taught in John 1 and Philippians 2, and these passages provide the basis for understanding what Paul says in Colossians 1 about Jesus being the firstborn of creation, or what Paul says about justification by faith in Romans 3 and 4, and Galatians 2 and 3 helps us to understand what is said in James 2. Or Paul's reference to the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15.29 must be understood in the light of what is taught in Romans 6. The Analogy of Faith The Bible is consistent in its central message. The principle of the unity of Scripture has been applied in another way, known as the analogy of faith. Since Scripture has a unified message, and that central message is captured in the rule of faith, that is, the central creedal doctrines of our faith, then individual passages should be interpreted in a way that is harmonious with that faith. Certainly, we must be careful that our human description of the faith, that is, our theological synthesis of the Bible's message, does not stand over the Bible itself. It must be tested by the Bible. As we said, there must be a dynamic relationship between these two such that our exegetical work interacts with our theological formulations, forcing us at times to make adjustments to those formulations if the exegetical results are strong enough. But the analogy of faith is still a helpful approach as a general principle of interpretation. Because the Bible has a divine author, it has a unified message, and that calls us to seek to synthesize that message as much as we can. And that's what theology is, an attempt to synthesize that coherent and unified message of God found in the Bible. The Bible's Focus on Jesus Christ and what is that unifying center of the Bible's message? Returning to our fundamental assumption that Jesus is to be master, we must say that the unifying center of the Bible is Jesus Christ. That is why Christians call the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament. It points forward to the New Testament, or covenant, which comes to us in Christ. 
In our next installment in this series, we will further explore this focus on Jesus and consider some of its important implications for our reading the Bible rightly. Thank you for listening. The C.S. Lewis Institute endeavors to develop disciples who will articulate, defend, and live their faith in Christ in personal and public life. This takes the form of discipleship programs, area-wide conferences and seminars, pastor fellowships, and resources in print and on the web. For more information about the C.S. Lewis Institute, or to support this ministry, please visit our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org.